Okay, let's make a start. Thank you very much for, for coming, everyone. Um, for those of you who didn't make last week's, the, um, there's an audio recording, I think, of the um, lecture up on WebLearn and the handouts, etc., up there as well. So um, you can just, just download them to your heart's content. So uh, today's lecture is entitled Beyond the Shoreless Sea, um, and I'm going to sort of go a bit deeper into Tolkien's mythology and try and explain sort of a bit about the scope of it. And uh, mainly, there's two more lectures after this given by Dr. Solopova, picking up on some more detail about Tolkien's mythology, his use of medieval literature and his, his languages. So, how do you write a fantasy novel? Well, let me qualify that. How do you write a good fantasy novel is probably the more important question because it's fairly easy to write a bad one, as you will if you ever go to uh, Blackwell's. I nearly said borders there, but they don't exist anymore, and pick up any of those books... Uh, you'll see that there's a lot of rubbish out there. Um, and obviously, it would be quite nice for all of us to know this, because it's, it's just financially very lucrative. And, of course, the topic to pick on is, whereas we're lecturing with Tolkien, is to look at maybe, are there clues in The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and Tolkien's mythology, um, which can provide us with role models? If we consider The Lord of the Rings, for example, although it's occasionally termed a trilogy, which it, it isn't, it's actually six books, and it's over 50 years old. It's sold millions of copies worldwide since its completion in 54 and has been translated into all kinds of languages. As I mentioned last week, it regularly tops readers' polls everywhere and has spawned three of the biggest-selling films of all time. And in the form of The Hobbit, which is a kind of prequel, but we can discuss that later, is about to produce two more if Peter Jackson gets it sorted. So, in a sense, the topic of this lecture is to try and work out, by analysis of those books... Um, what's made them so popular? Why did a critic in the Times, for example, feel safe to say the world is divided into two camps, those who have read The Lord of the Rings and those who are going to read it? <laughs> the very simple answer to this is one word, and that's depth. And it's something which I hinted at last week. Um, but from one, that one word comes many interesting avenues of investigation. And in a sense, that's what I want to concentrate on this lecture. As I said, the depth, scope and ambition of Tolkien's mythology which I think elevates his achievement as a novelist. Uh, so I'm going to move on, therefore, from the discussion last week of his career and his fiction. I'm going to look a bit more at The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, but towards the end I'm going to be drawing on some books which you may not be familiar with, the books of Lost Tales, uh, The Lost Road, and the Notion Club papers. But don't worry if you've never read them or heard of them. I'll give you a bit of an idea what goes on in some of that. So I've posed the question, how do you write a successful fantasy novel? And in that is a real bear trap, and that is the word fantasy it's clear that, as I said, there is some sort of genre out there which we've described as fantasy literature. If you go to any bookshop, you will see sci-fi and fantasy lumped together and it probably occupies more space or an equal amount of space as crime or thrillers in many of the popular bookshops. From the literary perspective, literary criticism that is, the issue with fantasy is that it immediately opens itself to uh, an attack for avoiding realism. It doesn't face up to the truth. It's escapism. And like fantasy, escapism is now a derogatory term. Just a picture up of him there, just in case you forgot what he looked like. <laughs> Apart from, I suppose, escapism when you talk about popular films, you can go to the movies because it's escapist, and that's all fine. Consider this comment by Jermaine Greer from 1997. The books that come in Tolkien's train are more or less what you would expect. Flight from reality is their dominant characteristic. And Tolkien himself came across similar criticisms in his lifetime and was obviously aware of this. However, as you would expect of him, he offered quite a strong defence. 
To begin with, he tackles the issue of escapism in an essay which I'm going to talk about a bit more on fairy stories. And he said, why should a man be scorned if, finding himself in prison, he tries to get out and go home? Or if, when he cannot do so, he thinks and talks about other topics than the jailers and the walls? Or to put it another way, as Riley did in 1969, a man may refuse to write about the world in which he lives, not out of cowardice, but because to write about it is to accept it. C.S. Lewis, Tolkien's great friend, also attempted to defend Tolkien's use of fantastical worlds against his criticism of escapism, but probably no doubt with half an eye on defending his own work, um, when he stated, The real life of men is of that mythical and heroic quality. One can see the principle at work in Tolkien's characterisation. Much that is realistic work would be done by character delineation is here done simply by making the character an elf, a dwarf, or a hobbit. The imagined beings have their insides on the outside. They are visible souls. Tolkien, as you may not be surprised, or you are not surprised to know, attempted to come up with his own theory of what fantasy was. And it's quite an elaborate theory, and it's often overlooked by people who aren't Tolkien scholars, that is. He began to try and put this together in his 1931 poem, Mythopoeia, or Mythmaking, if you want to translate it, which was written, actually, for C.S. Lewis, who, on an evening stroll through Magdalen College, you may know this, I think it's down Addison Walk area, with Tolkien and Hugo Dyson, Lewis had dismissed myths as lies and therefore worthless, even though breathed through silver. Tied up with ongoing discussions with Lewis in terms of Christianity, Tolkien wrote uh, Mythopoeia, and he began to set the seeds for his major theory of what fantasy literature was, which he details at most length in his essay, his lecture and his later essay on fairy stories, which he was delivered in 1939 at St Andrews as part of the Andrew Lang lecture. You may remember Andrew Lang from last week, um, but eventually published in 1947. In this, he argued that fantasy was actually a very high form of art, certainly when compared with realistic narrative, he thought because the scope it offered the writer was quite extraordinary and the response you could engender in the reader, again, was quite extraordinary. So I'll try and explain this in very simple terms, but I know I'm in no way doing justice to Tolkien's theory here, but this is really to, to condense it to the basics. For Tolkien, the writer of fantasy would become what he calls the sub-creator. You may be able to guess who the ultimate creator was. Tolkien, a devout Christian, of course, thought that was God, a point which he states in Mythopoeia. So the good writer of fantasy creates what he would term a secondary world, which in the, the mind of the reader enters, so Middle Earth in that sense. And when the story is successful, when you really have reached sub-creation, you, you get what you would, might describe in the reader secondary belief. This isn't Coleridge's willing suspension of disbelief. It's secondary belief where you actually believe what's happening in the story. So you're asking them to... Imagine all kinds of things, but it's usually an environment that has these elements of strangeness and wonder, but all of which, as I said, they read, they believe in through sub-creation. And I'll come back to how you might want to achieve sub-creation later on, because if you're going to go off and write this fantasy novel, it's quite useful to know that. He also argued that fantasy offered the writer a unique opportunity to engender in the reader a word which he invented called eucatastrophe, which is the opposite of catastrophe. It's that point and turn in the plot, or, and there can be many of them throughout the story, when you feel a sense of elation because the doom and defeat which you think is going to encompass this secondary world or the characters in it suddenly just suddenly doesn't look inevitable or indeed is, is overcome. 
So in fairy tales, you often get the happy ending, that kind of thing, is, is in most cases. And Tolkien's lecture was about fairy tales, of course, although he was moving on to discuss how this had much more importance for adult life. But if you think about, in Tolkien's books, there are several examples. Um, in The Hobbit, at the end of The Hobbit, the Battle of the Five Armies, you know, the cavalry kind of comes over the horizon and everything, everyone's saved. There's that lovely episode in The Lord of the Rings when Sam and Frodo, and they're not quite in Mordor yet, but they see a ruined statue, one of the ruined, uh, I think, statues of Gondor, and it's all been defaced by the orcs, but then a sunlight comes down and they realise that and there's a flower blooming over it, and they say, yes, no, good will come out. Um, the eagles arriving at Mount Doom at the end, when you think, how are Frodo and Sam going to get away from this? And they dream of the eagles, and they are actually the eagles. Um, but let me read a, a section from Lord of the Rings, and this is picking up a bit from a part I read last week. So this is the Siege of Gondor. I'm reading this because, this is, as I said, this is possibly one of my favourite parts of the book, and when I first read it, I think I, I, I felt this feeling of, of eucatastrophe, which he, he talks about. So, if you know, Gondor's been besieged by Sauron's forces, and they break through the door. In rode the Lord of the Nazgul, a great black shape against the fires beyond he loomed up, grown to a vast menace of despair. In rode the Lord of the Nazgul under the archway that no enemy ever yet had passed, and all fled before his face, all save one. There waiting, silent and still in the space before the gate, set Gandalf upon Shadowfax. Shadowfax, who alone among the free horses of the earth endured the terror, unmoving steadfast as a graven image in Rathdinan. You cannot enter here, said Gandalf, and the huge shadow halted. Go back to the abyss prepared for you. Go back. Fall into the nothingness that awaits you and your master. Go. The black rider flung back his hood, and behold, he had a kingly crown, and yet upon no head visible was it set. The red fire shone between it and the mantle shoulders vast and dark. From a mouth unseen there came a deadly laughter. Old fool, he said, old fool, this is my hour. Do you not know death when you see it? Die now and curse in vain. And with that he lifted high his sword and flames ran down the blade. And at that point there is a break in the narrative. There is a, almost you're starting a separate section. So there's a long pause. Gandalf did not move. And in that very moment, away behind in some courtyard of the city, a cock crowed. Shrill and clear he crowed, wrecking nothing of wizardry or war, welcoming only the morning that in the sky far above the shadows of death was coming with the dawn. And as if in answer, there came from far away another note. Horns, horns, horns. In dark Mandolin's sides, they dimly echoed. Great horns of the north wildly blowing. Rohan had come at last. It's a superb bit of narrative because it really draws you in and just ending that bit, almost with a biblical reference to the cock crowing, of course, and then suddenly, literally, the cavalry is on the horizon. The Rohirrim have come to save the day. Now, as I said, when I first read that, that lifted my spirits. That made me begin to think, well, of course, I probably had a guess that it was all going to end happily ever after, but that the final downfall of Sauron may actually come about. That's you catastrophe. Now, to Tolkien, this had a deep spiritual meaning, uh, and when you combine it with sub-creation, it was the true manifestation of fantasy. You put all those together, bingo, you've got your magic. The fantastical world, properly sub-created, combined with eucatastrophe moments, allowed you to engender in the audience an intense feeling of consolation. Um, but that, to Tolkien, was a reality. He was, of course, a Catholic, because it perceived what he perceived as the eternal truth, namely that there is no universal defeat of good by evil, and there never can be. The story of Christ, which Tolkien suggested to Lewis back in 1931, was, of course, real, but at the same time, the epitome of the power of myth demonstrated that Christianity offered a different end 
to the pagan pessimism of things like Ragnarok, for example, which is why so many people embraced Christianity in comparison. So to Tolkien then, fantasy achieved the status of art if it not only induced secondary belief, but more so if it brought about the feeling of eucatastrophe, this proposed opposite to tragedy, which offers, as he put it, a far-off gleam or echo of evangelium in the real world. Returning to our initial question, though, how do you write a good fantasy novel? So we've got a couple of answers. Become a sub-creator, create secondary belief in your audience, and litter it with nice happy turns in the plot. Uh, that good will win out. But, the critics have cried, this is just too simplistic. This isn't how the real works, I'm afraid, Professor Tolkien, and to suggest it does is naive in the extreme. Good doesn't always conquer evil. And to these critics, this is further proof that Tolkien was not capable of grasping or writing about the truth of human existence. He fills his world with two-dimensional characters, forgetting the comment by Lewis earlier, who are either good or evil, and they base their decisions on really rather simple motivating factors. And to be honest, you know, you don't have to look too hard to find a bit of truth in this, at a surface level, that is. Take, for example, the orcs, um, which Auden himself found problematic, Auden, one of Tolkien's greatest defenders. Um, they're pretty one-dimensional, it has to be said. I mean, they're a parade of vices, greed, jealousy, anger, cruelty, arrogance. Uh, they're clearly from the lower classes, good God. Um, and occasionally they have a Cockney accent. Um, but then again, perhaps not. Uh, if orcs were a race apart, then they would just be seen as a stereotypical bad guys, the guys that you, you're just meant to kill in the thousands. However, that's not the case. They also, for example, are afraid, they're uncertain, and occasionally there's an element of barrack humour in there. But what we also have to remember is orcs are, of course, descendants of tortured and mutilated elves in the dungeons of Morgoth, a deformed version, therefore, of beauty and grace. And as is evident in the Silmarillion, even the seemingly perfect elves, who just seem too good to be true at times, succumb to very human emotions, jealousy, pride, and revenge. Even Sauron, the Dark Lord himself, is not that simple. As we're told explicitly by Gandalf, he wasn't always evil. He became evil. He's the fallen angel, part of the creation myth. And let us consider two other characters which perhaps throw the, blow this idea that Tolkien was just simply talking about black and white, good and evil. Uh, which are absolutely key to Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. They're ever-present, more or less. They determine the outcome of the stories. They present to us quite interesting studies of complexities of human reaction, namely Gollum and the Ring. Now, Gollum, whichever way you look at it, is a, is a pretty masterful study in a sort of dual personality. I wouldn't say schizophrenia, but anyway, you can take what you want. But the battles that might go on, albeit writ large between an individual, that sometimes are, are quite repulsive, and sometimes are very sympathetic. The Ring is perhaps even more interesting if you class it as a character, um, because it allows Tolkien to explore some quite complicated ideas of good and evil uh, and, and predetermination. I mean, importantly, the Ring is evil through and through. No one ever suggests it was a nice ring and then it became nasty, um, <laughs> suggesting that evil can be created, and if something can be created and God created everything, then you can see the heresy. But also, it's used to demonstrate how easy it is to arouse good from evil. Remember, Frodo actually fails in his quest, his personal quest, that is, because ultimately, at the end, like Boromir, he succumbs to the temptation of power which the ring offers him. So even Frodo, who possibly, you, you know, you find yourself hard to defend, is so simplistically good and heroic, is actually a slightly more complicated character than many people would, would contemplate. And he has his own strengths and weaknesses, and is ultimately found wanting a bit like a character I'm going to mention a bit, Sir Gawain. 
While we're back in the realm of Tolkien and the critics, which we had so much fun about last week, let me just have a couple of brief digressions um, to discuss another couple of sticks that are used to beat Tolkien with. Um, the first um, is the common complaint that he could not or would not write about women. Um, and it is undoubtedly true that if you look at his life story, he favours the company of men, conditioned no doubt by his school, public school, his, his military career, and what he experienced at Oxford. And if you think about it, outside of Eowyn, the shield maiden, and Galadriel in The Lord of the Rings, the female characters are extremely weak. Uh, Goldberry, Arwen, the old woman Yorith, Rosie Cotton. I mean, these aren't exactly Lady Macbeths, are they? And women are pretty much non-existent in The Hobbit. I mean, I've, I was trying to remember where they are. <laughs> I'm struggling. Um, and understandably, some readers, notably female readers, can find this problematic. However, I don't think an absence of such figures necessarily implies that he was misogynistic or anything like that, um, nor should it be used as an argument, which many people do, that the books are purely aimed at prepubescent males. He argued, personally, that his books were necessarily masculine because of the nature of the subject matter, and he hoped, although there wasn't many men, uh, women in the story, he thought the tales themselves, which he described as wars and a terrible expedition to the North Pole, would have universal appeal. But nevertheless, he actually took these things to heart. And he wrote uh, one time in Defending, I know that one interviewer explained it. This is Lord of the Rings. It is written by a man who has never reached puberty and knows nothing about women but as a schoolboy. And all the good characters come home like happy boys safe from the war. I thought it was very rude. So far as I know, the man is childless, writing about a man, Tolkien, surrounded by children, wife, daughter, granddaughter. Then there is the other criticism of Tolkien, that he was, what he was actually secretly favouring uh, was an age-old Germanic form of society based on some form of heroic and militaristic ethos. As a proof, it suggested, for example, that Tolkien basically was just reworking Wagner. Uh, Tolkien snorted back, both rings were round, and there the similarity ends. But the critics do persist, and they still persist in this. You, will, you don't have to go far to find some people alluding to the fact that they thought basically Tolkien was a, a neo-fascist. He was writing in the 30s and 40s. He's a scholar of Germanic mythology, literature and languages. He writes of battles, military might, celebrating a heroic ideal. Surely then there's some sort of similarity going on. What he's trying to say is a good thing, and what certain people over in the continent in the Third Reich were saying. He was aware of these comments and was absolutely horrified. Um, he once remarked he'd, he'd much rather prefer a state of anarchy to one of fascism. Uh, and most importantly, he absolutely hated the Nazis for all the reasons that everyone would who had any sense, but also because what they were doing was twisting and distorting the things which he loved uh, and which he taught and which he studied, namely the Germanic myths. Uh, a nice example of this is when um, he was contacted by uh, some uh, Nazi publishers who wanted to do a German edition of The, uh, the Hobbit, and, and they asked if he was Aryan. And he said, If I am un to understand that you are inquiring whether I am of Jewish origin, I can only reply that I regret that I appear to have no ancestors of that gifted people, and concluded, Let a German translation go hang. <laughs> I suspect he was on the list if they'd invaded. <laughs> In fact, if anything, Lord of the Rings is an entirely anti-fascist text, to be truth. Combination of cultures and races, learn tolerance for each other, Gimli and Legolas, obvious example, overcome all differences, unite and defeat two entirely fascist states bent on world domination, genocide or mass enslavement, Sauron and Saruman. 
I often wonder if Tolkien could have escaped all the criticisms as if he had just at one point said, OK, hands up, it's an allegory of Hitler and Stalin. The Lord of the Rings is an allegory of the Second World War itself, and the ring is the atomic bomb. Would that have deterred the critics? And again, you will find many people who were spouting this around. Would they then have forgiven all his sins and seen this otherwise flight of escapist fantasy as a work of modern social commentary? Alas, we'll never know, because Tolkien was pretty adamant about the whole issue. Um, if you read the preface to the later editions of The Lord of the Rings, he was pretty, pretty adamant about this. I cordially dislike allegory in all its manifestations and always have done since I grew old and wary enough to detect its presence. I much prefer history, true or feigned, with its varied applicability to the thought and experience of readers. He thought that people confused allegory with applicability. And he said, to ask if orcs are communists is to me as sensible as asking as if communists are orcs. Now, there is a rare clip of Tolkien, hopefully you'll be able to hear this, where someone, an interviewer in the 60s, posed this question to him. Was this, um, was this genuine? Was, was this an allegory of the atomic bomb and the atomic age in the Second World War? So, I'll play it now. The temptation to read into the book, a kind of allegory of the age bomb, right? I mean, what is said somewhere in the book is that the One Ring is a power so enormous that even if a good man were to use it against a bad, it would corrupt the good man. But that is a thing which other people would I arrived, I abused other people arrived long before they formed and built it. Also, I may say that I began building these stories in which, uh, the Dark Lord, uh, when I was undergraduate, they were already in an advanced stage during the first war, it wasn't even heard of. Pretty much categorically saying that. And even in a letter, 1944, to his son who was serving in the RAF, he said, We are attempting to conquer Sauron and the Ring. Well, from what I know of history, in 1944, the Germans didn't have the H-bomb, so it can't have been an allegory. But I've given enough airline or airtime to the critics, so um, let's just leave it. And I'll give the final word to Tolkien himself on the critics itself. Some who have read the book, Lord of the Rings, or at any rate have reviewed it, have found it boring, absurd, or contemptible, and I have no cause to complain, since I have similar opinions of their works, or of the <laughs> kinds of writing they evidently prefer. Let us now consider something else, the stories of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Get back to my original question about fantasy. Um, look a bit, a few more, a few more details about uh, their composition. So The Hobbit was written, as I think I mentioned last week, in the 30s, and through a series of coincidences found its way eventually to Stanley Unwin, of Alan and Unwin, who, keeping to a, a rather developed theory, uh, was that children were the best judges of children book, gave it to his 10-year-old son, Rainer, and this was Rainer's report, which is absolutely wonderful. He got a shilling for it, I might add. Um, he thought the book Reynard, this is the 10-year-old, was good and would appeal to all children between the ages of 5 and 9. Pretty precise. One shudders to think what would have happened if he hadn't liked it. It was published on September 21st, 1937, the day before Bilbo's birthday. And as a children's book, it must be remembered, um, it was marketed so. Received a warm reception, C.S. Lewis anonymously, but we know it's him. Um, and both publishers and reviewers immediately started to compare it to Alice in Wonderland as the work of a professor at play in Oxford. And in 1937, L.A.G. Strong was already referring to it in The Spectator as a classic. The story, I'm sure you know, is very straightforward. The Hobbit, Bilbo Baggins, accompanies a load of dwarves. They go off to seek the dragon's gold. They leave the Shire. They cross the middle part of Middle-earth over the Lonely Mountain. They succeed in their quest at some cost, and then Bilbo comes all the way back, richer 
and a more mature character. And in the course of all that, he encounters Gollum and picks up a ring. Due to the success of The Hobbit, Tolkien was pressed to write a sequel by the publishers, Alan Nunwin, and they had a long wait on their hands, as I said, 17 years, in fact. Again, a rare little interview here with Tolkien about writing Lord of the Rings. Got any questions on how to do again? Great problem again with uh, the house I ever had. I think now I was just reading the story. Everything was in my Street. Then when I came back to Oxford, I lived in two houses in North Florida. They're both associated with uh, my writing, particularly Pickman, uh, number 20. Now I'm just reading comments. And the vision stuff like that in fact. Then when the war was over. And that's what quite properly I had been destroyed. I had to move back to this little house in Narrow Road, which now sits the uh English Library. That's where the Lord of Windsor might go. Here. So if you go out the English faculty, just stare across Manor Road. Great books of the 20th century was written over there. When they actually got the manuscript of The Lord of the Rings, they were in for a bit of a shock. Um, first of all, it was rather long. It dwarfed The Hobbit and had to be published as a trilogy because costs of paper were so prohibitive after the war. Um, much to Tolkien's annoyance, it must be added, he absolutely refused the idea that it was a trilogy and he particularly liked, disliked the titles that they, the publishers gave it. He thought things like The Two Towers and particularly The Return of the King Gave the game away a bit too much. <laughs> Moreover, it was a bit of a it was a much darker text, aimed more at an adult audience with academic style prefaces and appendices. And Tolkien himself is quite open about this. In in 1956, 11th of April, in a letter, he says it was certainly not written for children. Uh, slightly earlier, 1955, in a very important letter, 7th of June to Auden, um, he says it is not a fairy story, it is not a sequel, and it is written for adults. Tom Shippey, in his book, Author of the Century, which I'd recommend to you, notes that on its release, nobody knew what on earth to make of it. It was a sport, a mutation, a lucis naturae, a one-item category on its own. But again, let's consider the basic story of the Lord of the Rings. It's, again, a quest. This time, across the whole of Middle-earth, undertaken by four hobbits. Well, there's five to begin with, but he, Fatty Bolger doesn't get very far. And they're companions to the background of a world war. The aim of the quest is the destruction of the ring that Bilbo discovered in Gollum's cave. So perhaps we've hit on another magic bit of our formula. Structure. Both books are quests. Maybe then, if we were to write our successful fantasy novel, we could do that. And quests are quite popular. Go back to Theseus, Jason, Jack and the Beanstalk, or the fantasy novels that Tolkien himself really liked, William Morris, Lord Dunsany, etc., uh, and medieval literature, of course, is, is, is resplendent with quests. Arthur's Knights Seeking the Holy Grail, or my favourite ones, Beowulf Seeking his, his, his Manship when he goes to Denmark, and then he has to go on another quest to kill Grendel's mother, and finally a final quest to kill a dragon. Yet the one medieval text in particular which provides the best touchstone is Sir Gawain in the Green Knight, and Tolkien was extremely interested in this text, and mainly be, possibly because... Possibly, not mainly. Possibly because of its Midlands origin, which he, he based himself or felt he was from. Um, and he produced an edition, as I said last week, with E.V. Gordon in 1925. He also delivered a lecture on it in 1953, and his translation of the text was posthumously published in 1975. And he may even have written a parody of it in the form of Farmer Giles of Ham in 1949. But it's the plot of Sir Gawain which is quite interesting. So I'm sure you've all read it, but for the one or two who haven't, so the story begins at Christmas, very frivolous 
Society in Camelot. Festivities are interrupted. In comes the Green Knight. He issues a challenge. You can take a single blow, knock his head off. You know the story. Knocks his head off. Walks up, says, right, come back in a year's time. Meet me at my chapel. <laughs> Gawain has to do this, and off he goes. The Gawain goes on this quest to seek the Green Knight and eventually meets him at the chapel, and Gawain prepares to receive the death blow, which, of course, he is relieved of, uh, only getting a nick on the neck. And then Gawain returns to Camelot, a much-changed person. So in similar terms, and Camelot itself is a changed place, in similar terms, then, the underlying plot of Gawain is based around a quest to find the Green Knight's chapel, and Gawain ultimately survives, and thus the quest becomes circular. He literally goes there and back again. Yet Gawain that sets out and the Camelot he reaches are very, very different places. And in simply ter simple terms, Gawain grows up, and so does Camelot to a certain degree. And the analogy to The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings is obvious. You must remember the full title of The Hobbit is The Hobbit or There and Back Again. And running throughout the wonderful songs in The Hobbit, there are, there are, there are ideas of going on the quest. The dwarves sing, we must away a break of day to seek the pale enchanted gold. When they get to Rivendell, the elves taunt them with, or what are you doing, or where are you going, what are you seeking, where are you making? And then right at the end of the book, in a very, very poignant part, Bilbo recites his lovely song, Roads go ever, ever on, under cloud and under star, yet feet that wandering have gone, turn at last to home afar. Eyes that fire and sword have seen, and horror in the halls of stone. Look at last on meadows green, and trees and hills they long have known. Which I often wondered whether Tolkien felt like that coming back from the song. So, the melody, of course, that, that, that um, Bilbo sings foretells the journey Frodo will have to take, and it is repeated in Lord of the Rings as well. But there is a quest to get the dragon's treasure to destroy the ring. And we have central characters like Gawain, we have Bilbo and the dwarves, Frodo and the Fellowship, and the main protagonist, which set out from a simple childlike place, the Shire in both cases, return to a changed environment more mature after their experiences. Bilbo returns richer, wiser into his house being sold, Frodo and the hobbits return to Saruman's destruction, but now have the understanding and confidence to deal with the problem themselves, something which was singularly missed by Peter Jackson, unfortunately. And the links with Sir Gawain go even further. All three tales start with feasts. There's the tea party for the dwarves and the birthday party in Lord of the Rings. Both are childlike at first until safe worlds are intruded on by Gandalf and Thorin's band or by the Nazgul. During the quest, the heroes face temptation. Bilbo at any point could run away, certainly once he has the ring and leave his companions. He never does. And underpinning the Lord of the Rings is the temptation of the ring to reuse the ring, not destroy it. And this all conforms more or less to the letter with classic stages of the heroic quest, then separation from the community, initiation, and return. Tolkien also reflects this in his style. Um, and I'll give you a very quick example. Well, I'll give you a question. So when Sam and Frodo set out from the, the Shire, um, they fall asleep in a wood. And then someone comes along and says, Hobbits, he thought. Well, what next? I've never heard of strange doings in this land, but I've seldom heard of a hobbit sleeping out of doors under a tree. Three of them. There's something mighty queer behind this. He was quite right, but he never found out any more about it. Does anyone know who said that? A fox. Yes, exactly. Now, you couldn't have that fox saying that at the end of the book. It just would not work. Because the book and the characters at the end have grown up, and then physically, in the case of Merry and Pippin. So Tolkien uses the quest storyline in a highly deliberate and intentional way. Frodo twice uses the term quest in his journey with Sam, particularly towards the end of the book, and the cyclical nature is there. There is the change in landscape and character, there is the maturing with the hobbits, 
and the widespread influence of the destruction and evil which they find at the end even the Shire isn't immune from. And this was recognised early on, and I'm coming back to Auden again, um, but, you know, he is an important critic of Tolkien. In the New York Times Book Review, 1956, Auden stated that Tolkien succeeded more completely than any previous writer in this genre in using traditional properties of the quest, the heroic journey. Moreover, in his extended study, The Quest Hero, first published in 1962, he went on to analyse what he saw as the quest, and I don't think it takes much of an imagination to start matching most of those things to the quests you see in The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Yet, there are several other quests. There's the obvious one, if you take The Lord of the Rings, of getting, trying to destroy the ring from Fram and Soda and everyone else. You also have the individual quests of Aragorn, Gandalf, even Merry and Pippin. Um, they're all separated, and then they have to go through various journeys of growing up. Minor quests or challenges... You could say Theoden's return for the brink of destruction um, against the councils of Wormtongue, um, and so on. But the most important thing is that the quest in the Lord of the Rings is abnormal. They're not actually going to seek something, they're actually going to destroy something, which is very, very odd. Even then, the quest, although we may think is completed at the Lord of the Rings, it isn't, because Frodo can't find Solace when, Solace when he gets back. He has to go to the Undying Lands, um, he doesn't return to the Shire. He stops off at the Shire. So it's not like Gawain before he goes on to parts over the sea. And even Sam, if you ever read the abandoned end ending to Lord of the Rings, although he finishes the story, Sam actually, according to Tolkien, does have to seek solace and go across to the Undying Lands as well, which he was entitled to as a ring bearer. Gollum's perhaps the most interesting inversion of the quest. He's forced to leave his lair, the separation, and to search for his precious, the quest, which is his quest himself. Uh, and his in but his encounters in Frodo and Sam bring about a transformation, which again is a bit like a quest then. But at the end, has he completed his quest? He gets the ring, but he loses his battle. He's not permanently transformed, and ultimately it destroys him. I'll leave one final comment on the subject of the quest to Auden. If there is any quest tale which while primarily concerned with the subjective life of the individual person, as all such stories must be, manages to do more justice to our experience of social historical realities than the Lord of the Rings, I should be glad to hear of it. So, okay, our opening question again. How do you write a good bit of fantasy fiction? So, we've got Tolkien's theories we can work on, we've got structures, and we've got storylines, and so on. So now I'm going to return to something called sub-creation, which I mentioned at the beginning. Um, and I said this is essential according to Tolkien's theory of fantasy. How can you accomplish this? How can you make your story so believable that this, the reader never ever removes themselves from it and questions it? And I said the answer, of course, was depth. Tolkien, of course, remember, took about 40 years, and he never really stopped to achieve this depth, to write his mythology, if you go back to when it, when it started. He was actually writing poems about dragons at the age of six, um, but the, probably the pinpoint date is 1914, summer of 1914. And it's then that Tolkien read an old English poem called Christ One by the Anglo-Saxon poet Cynewulf, which Tolkien found a lamentable bore. But in this, he came across these lines. What was Eärendil? No one really knows, actually. It's glossed as Venus or a star. But Tolkien pondered over this. Who or what was Eärendil? And what he tried to do was solve 
the puzzle. So he writes a poem in September 1914 called The Voyage of Eärendil, the Evening Star, which he tries to formulate a story as to who or what this person or thing might be that the Anglo-Saxons were looking at. He revisits this in 1916-17, and by then his mythology is beginning to form in his mind. He writes a, a tale called The Fall of Gondolin, and it snowballs and snowballs. So what he's doing, he's beginning to put scraps of tales together way back in 1916-1917, which he begins to expand to provide his mythology. History, genealogies, flora, fauna, languages, they all start to flow from this. And at the same time, he's not forgetting that his inspiration was medieval literature, so he starts to bring that in whenever he can. And it's only in the Silmarillion, which was published after his death, that we really saw the magnitude of this. But it goes even deeper than this. It's not just the mythology that you may have encountered in Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And here I have to give you a crash course on Tolkien's mythology. So my apologies for this. <coughs> Try with the age of a large stick. <laughs> <coughs> so this is a hypothesis. This isn't Tolkien's map, but it's a hypothesized version of Tolkien's word, world, Arda. Over here we have Middle Earth. Um, it doesn't look like Middle Earth that you may have seen in the maps, but it kind of is. And over here we have the Undying Lands. Uh, and you'll find information about this in the books of Lost Tales, Unfinished Tales, The Silmarillion, etc. So this is really kind of the first age of Middle-earth, and there's a region there called Beleriand, which you will hear reference to occasionally. Most importantly, this is where the gods live, and this is where the elves originate from, and this is really where, later on, the men and the actions of Lord of the Rings take place. This key little island here, called the Lonely Isle of Sol Erisir, is very important. Um, it's kind of like a holy mystical island, um, and this one we will come up in a second. So, in Tolkien's vision, at least to begin with, the world is flat. It's surrounded by an encircling sea, like Garsedge, the old English word for sea, uh, and then we have Midanyeyard. In the Silmarillion, we're told that Eärendil, the mariner, sails across the sea to try and get help from the gods um, to defeat the evil Morgoth. This all might be getting a bit complicated, but keep with me, okay? Uh, and the gods agree to help him, and there's the War of Wrath, which ends the First Age, and Morgoth is destroyed. However, in doing so, vast chunks of this earth, are, or this landmass, are receded by sea and overcome. Um, and the land to the east, uh, which is the part here, forms into this sort of landmass we now would recognise in Lord of, the, Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. But what of Eärendil? For his reward, even though he was a mortal man... He's granted the immortality of an elf, and with a Silmaril, a, a jewel, in his brow, he was forever to sell the skies, appearing to the people of Middle-earth as a star. And thus we have an answer, Tolkien's answer, to what Christ won the poem was about. Indeed, there's an elvish phrase, Aya Eärendel, Elenion, and Calamil, means literally, Hail Eärendel, brightest of stars, which is exactly like the Old English. Okay, the second age shifts to men, human beings, who are mortal, of course, um, their loyalty, they're given this island here, the island of Numenor, and everything's going swimmingly until one of Sauron's um, agents, who survived the War of Wrath, called Sauron, persuades them that it would be a jolly good idea to go and attack the gods. Um, <laughs> he, he was working his power then. 
This, of course, was a really silly thing to do. Um, so the gods get quite annoyed about this and destroy the Numenorians here. A few of them escape, and they're the line, the lineage that become Aragorn, etc. This is swamped by great waves. And more importantly, at that point, the world becomes round or bent, a bit like our own planet. And all of this, particularly the Lonely Arbor, the Undying Lands, are somehow removed in a way that is never properly explained from the planet. So this extremely concise history is crucial to one particular point. Namely, that what Tolkien was playing with was the fact that the Middle Earth that we read about in his fiction is, of course, our Earth. The whole world is made round into the Earth, the landmass we know as Middle Earth eventually becomes Europe and start those geographical upheavals and so on and so forth. He even stated the story takes place on this Earth and in the skies in general the same is now visible. So, what Tolkien's trying to do here is present one possible scenario that might explain some of the legends he comes across. His mythology provides us with a prehistory as to why there are appearances of dwarves, elves, dragons, shape changes, runes, and so on in the medieval literature. He said, basically, this is a prehistory of the planet. Even the fall of Numenor explains the um, ancient myth of the destruction of Atlantis. If one could go back, as one of his characters says, one would find not myth dissolving into history, but rather the reverse, real history becoming more mythical. So, I want to conclude this lecture by just building on this a bit more. Um, uh, I'm going to make reference to a poem called The Seafarer. It's an old English poem. But in so doing, I'm going to sort of talk a bit more about how Tolkien reuses medieval literature, but at the same time shows how his mythology expanded, or tried to expand, to become something quite remarkable. So if you know the poem, the old English poem, The Seafarer, it's basically about a person who longs to go to sea. And even though he knows it's very hard, he just longs to go there and then he muses on the transient of life. And this, again, intrigues Tolkien. Why was there this sea longing in people? He himself experienced it. Um, he talks about dreams he used to have when he was down in Cornwall of great waves coming at them and wondering what was out there. It's America, but anyway, he wondered... <laughs> And we have his poem, The Tides on the Cornish Coast, his Earendel verses, his poems such as The Sea Bell, The Happy Mariners, Imram over Widner Garsedge, and so on. And you can recall, for example, Legolas saying, The sea, alas, I have not yet beheld it, but deep in the hearts of all my kindred lies the sea longing, which it is perilous to stir. But what intrigued Tolkien was what he thought about laying beyond the sea. What really was out there? And it may sound strange, but if you recall what I'm just talking about there, is there a way or was there something out there which was beyond the sea? Not the land masses of North and South America. Was there something else? Could the sea be a boundary between this world and the next? So he started to play with this idea in his mythology. And in the text which I would refer to, or point you towards, Books of Lost Tales 1 and 2, um, there is the uh, fragments entitled The Shaping of Middle-Earth and the History of Middle-Earth series, um, but more importantly, The Lost Road and the Notion Club Papers. Whichever way you look at it, when you try to read these stories, they're quite complicated. They contradict each other, etc., and they're stories in formation. So I'm, I'm doing a bit of a, a bold summary here. But what he was trying to do was play with the idea whether he could link the stories in The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, The Silmarillion to real life. And the common idea, the plot he uses, is he either has people dreaming or he uses a character from an ancient time, from a real ancient time, who stumbles across 
the mythology, the lands of Middle-earth. Um, he uses a common thing where he has a father and son from various periods of history, even going up into the 20th century, who dream of seeing a giant wave swamping a land. They're dreaming of Numenor, the fall of Numenor. So he's trying to say there is some sort of link here. <coughs> Running through this also is the, the curious figure of Alfwina, old English for elf friend. He's occasionally called Ariel as well. Um, and again, the details vary, vary in Sodium, but basically, if we look at one version of the story, Elfwina, he's an Anglo-Saxon. He's living in something like the, it can be the 10th century or the 11th century. Um, he's told that he lives in England. Tolkien makes it quite clear England was the home of the elves until the arrival of men. Um, he has this sea longing. He sails off into the west to see where the elves are, to try and find something. He dives overboard. He's lost presumed lost, but actually what happens is he does find that lonely island where the elves are, and then Tolkien starts providing us with these sort of mock pseudo-texts written in Old English, which are translations of Elvish texts. So you can see how he's beginning to play with it quite bizarrely. Um, the Notion Club papers is perhaps the most interesting one, written in 1944 to 46. This is the story of a group of academics who are meeting in the 1980s and 1990s, so he's trying to think ahead, who call themselves the Notion Club paper, Notion Inklings, um, and they read parts of their stories. But in that, we get people <laughs> dreaming um, about things that went on before. So we have it, it's in two versions, Michael, well, two steps. We have the dreams of Michael Raymer, who is an academic, part of the Notion Club paper. He dreams that he can see things in the past. He sees a great wave flooding a land, the fall of Numenor. Uh, and then we have another character, Arundel Loudham, um, who dreams, he even thinks the Radcliffe camera, he sees, he likens it to Sauron's temple on Numenor, he sees that when he's walking around Radcliffe Square and in another dream he finds himself oh hello, I'm in an Anglo-Saxon hall and he wakes up and he's actually this Alfwina character and he recites lines straight from the seafarer, they're mixed up but he's reading Old English and again he's playing around with this idea, so what Tolkien is basically trying to do is say that, you know, there is something going on, some sort of ancestral memory which passes through people, and some people know of this or can go way back, and they don't just go back to the Anglo-Saxon times, they go back to the fall of Numenor. It's all linked, it's all the same place. So, by placing fictional characters in real history, like Alfwina, like the men in, uh, in the 20th century in Cornwall, or the bizarre club of Oxford academics meeting in the 80s and the 90s, um, he was breaking free of the fantasy. In effect, he's saying the events depicted in the Silmarillion and all of that are real. They're from some prehistorical time. And memories of these events filter down, as I've said, to subsequent people in dreams. And the only people who can really quite get in touch with all this are the English. <laughs> so he's playing with a means by which we can present his mythology as something real. Christopher Tolkien said, with the entry at this time of the cardinal ideas of the downfall of Numenor, the world made round, the straight road, the concept of Middle-earth, the thought of a time travel story, everything was extended into a multi-layered past. My father was envisaging a massive and explicit linking of his own legends with those of many other places and times. This is a depth to the mythology which I think many people are unaware of. Uh, it kind of links to a, 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 a statement that's often bandied about by, about Tolkien that he was trying to write a mythology for England, um, which he actually ever never said. Um, it was Humphrey Carpenter in his biography which said it. 
The nearest thing Tolkien said was, I was from early days grieved by the poverty of my own beloved country. It had no stories of its own. Do not laugh, but once upon a time I had a mind to make body of more or less connected legend which I could dedicate simply to England, to my country. Basically, he was looking at things like the Kalevala of Finland, dismisses Beowulf to a certain degree because it's not really part of England, and says, we don't have anything like this. We don't have anything which explains our history, where we come from, why we think like this, and I'm possibly going to come up with a mythology to explain that. So by trying to link his vast mythology to real-life England, he even goes at one point so far as to say, oh, well, this place in Middle-earth, that's actually Warwick. So he even goes to link sort of place names as well. He's doing something quite extraordinary. He's formulating an extensive mythology which involves a prehistory of the world, but that can be linked to later stories of English literature and through the time travel dreams which he brings up in The Lost Road and The Silmarillion. But Tolkien abandons this. He never pushed this publication, um, or the publication of The Lost Road or the Notion Club papers. And he later on described his idea of creating a mythology for England as absurd. And the question which we need to finish on is why? Why write all of this stuff which you can pick up and read in the History of Middle-earth series, um, you can pick up in his letters, why do all this and then abandon it? And I think that comes back to the start of this lecture when we return to the opening question, how do you write a successful fantasy novel? I think lesser writers, and I'm not going to name them, like lesser writers certainly than Tolkien, would probably have written all this stuff and gone, great, hey, here's another thing we can sell, and just would have kept it. But Tolkien, remember, had defined the rules for fantasy, and he couldn't break them. So, yes, if we're going to write a novel, we have to embrace his, his idea of fantasy. Yes, we have to present a world that engenders secondary belief. Yes, we can start linking it to things and mythologies and so on. Yes, we can provide genealogies and who and histories and all kinds of stuff that, that kind of help us and help the reader think they're in a real world. And then we have to take stock. We have to ask ourselves, are we ever going too far? Is this, any of this unbelievable? And my personal view is that at some point, Tolkien probably looked at what he was beginning to play at in the books of Lost Tales, The Lost Road, The Notion Club Papers, the character of Elf Wiener, and thought, well, it's, it's probably very good, but it's just not working. It's just going too far. By suggesting our Earth is linked to Middle Earth, there's a danger that you're going to shatter secondary belief. So he goes no farther, goes so far, sorry, and then no further, and withdraws from the brink. He leaves us with a lot of tantalizing clues, and it's great when you can start reading this, but he does stop it. But even so, and I, I appreciate that was a real rattle through it, it is impressive to say the least. His ambition was extraordinary, and I would say it's probably one of the most wide-reaching experiments in the potential of fiction ever attempted. I began last week by saying I was wary of giving these two lectures. Uh, perhaps I shouldn't have been. How can you feel insecure when you have the security of Tolkien's mythology to fall back on? As one, someone once said, it's a mountain, and even the critics, all they're doing is throwing rocks at it, because the mountain will always be there. Now, I find myself agreeing with C.L. Wren when he said Tolkien is a genius, but strongly disagreeing with him when he says, if only he wrote accordingly, what wonders could he accomplish? I feel he did write accordingly and did achieve wonders. Next week, Dr. Solopova will be lecturing you, and two more lectures in this series. Thank you very much.